This talk by Joan Sutherland is the sixth of nine in the series Vimalakirti, The Dream of Awakening and the Room Where the Broken Heart Mends. It was given at Saragorda Temple in Santa Fe, New Mexico on June 2nd, 2011. Good evening, Bodhisattvas. We're continuing tonight with the sutra that Vimalakirti spoke um, and kept speaking and kept speaking and kept speaking. Um, and so far, the main characters in the story have been three. They've been Vimalakirti, the householder bodhisattva who is ill, and Manjushri, the bodhisattva of wisdom, who comes to visit him and, and ask him about what it's like to be ill as a bodhisattva. And Shariputra, who's one of the main disciples of the Buddha and functions a little bit as the straight man in, in the story. And we'll do so again tonight. Um, in addition to those three main people, there are 32,000 observers in, the, in Vimalakirti's 10 by 10 foot room. So um, this is obviously an extraordinary 10 by 10 foot room with a lot of miraculous things in it. And one of the um, miraculous things in this room is that there is a goddess who's been living there for 12 years. And when she sees all these people and she sees this conversation going on and she sees this wonderful assembly of 32,000 souls, she makes herself visible and showers down flowers upon um, everyone who's assembled there. And then this really strange thing happens. Um, oh, and, I, and I have to tell you about two kinds of people who, are, who the, the flowers rain down upon. One are the bodhisattvas, and the other are um, a group of people who are the disciples, some of the disciples of the Buddha, and they're known by a bunch of different names. But the best translation I found, the, the, the English version I really love, is that they're the private Buddhas, which means they're the ones who think of enlightenment as a personal, individual experience. It's something they're going after for themselves. It's private to them. And throughout the Vimalakirti Sutra, one of the subtexts is this... Um, Contrast between the private Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas, who, of course, um, yearn for enlightenment so that they can help others find enlightenment themselves. So, the flowers come down from um, from the goddess, and when they come down on the Bodhisattvas, they sort of come down and they keep falling and they fall down to the ground. When they come down on the private Buddhas, the flowers stick to them. They won't, they won't get off. And the private Buddhas have a view that they shouldn't be wearing flowers because that's adornment and they're ascetics and they don't do that. And so they're madly trying to pick the flowers off with them and the flowers won't be brushed off. And um, this, is, this is rather an extraordinary thing that, um, that, that catches um, everybody by surprise, including Shariputra. And so, um, and, and she turns to Shariputra, who's one of the people who's trying to brush the flowers off, and she says, tell me, sir, why would you try to remove the flowers? And uh, Shariputra answers, these flowers are contrary to the Dharma, so I would remove them, because monastics were forbidden to adorn themselves like that. And the goddess replies to um, the idea that the flowers are contrary to the Dharma by saying, 
Don't say that these flowers are contrary to the Dharma. Why? These flowers make no such discrimination. It is you who are generating discriminative thoughts. That's all. If you who have left the householder's life to follow the Buddha Dharma make such discrimination, that is what is contrary to the Dharma. If you are without discrimination, this is in accord with the Dharma. Look at the bodhisattvas to whom the flowers do not stick. This is because they have eradicated all discriminative thoughts. So here's the first big teaching of of the goddess. Um, We tend to make discriminations. We tend to have views about things. We tend to have opinions. There was a physicist who said that uh, what happened when the universe was created was that an almost infinite multiplicity of viewpoints were created. (laughs) So that's a real thing. That's a genuine thing. But if we think that, that our view is the same thing as reality, that's where we get into trouble. If we think that because we have a view about flowers, that says something essential about flowers, that's the problem. It's not a problem that we have views, we do that, but in the immortal words of um, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, you are entitled to your own opinions, but you are not entitled to your own facts. <laughs> so we, we just have to recognize that what we have is views. That's all. We don't have to make them bad. We don't have to worry about them or, or go to war with them or anything like that. It's the simple recognition that what I think about the flower is a view. It has nothing really inherently necessarily to say about the flower. It may turn out that our view accords with reality, you know, that, that we, have a, we have a more or less realistic view of the flower, and that's great. And it may turn out that we don't. The important thing is to recognize that it's a view, which means it's provisional, it's impermanent, it rises and falls, it ought to be subject to new evidence. And at any given moment, it's our best guess. And that's as much as we get in this life. We get our best guess. Um, and so, so she's saying, remember that discrimination, remember that duality doesn't actually exist in the world around you. It exists in your mind. That's a huge thing. Duality does not inherently exist in the world around us. It exists in our mind. It's something our mind does with the world. So then um, the goddess and Shariputra go on speaking together, and she asks him how long he's been liberated, but he won't answer that question. And she asks him why he won't answer the question. And he says, liberation can't be spoken of in words, and so I don't know what I can say to you. Okay, so that's a pretty, you know, that, that, that sounds like Zen 101, right? You know, Zen is a special transmission outside the scriptures, not dependent on words, you know, and all that stuff. But, but she's saying something really important, which is that when you do that, when you say it cannot be spoken of, um, you're making words special. They're like, in this case, specially bad. Instead of realizing that words are just words, and they're like anything else. You know, they're, they're, they're as good and bad and capable of, of illuminating and capable of misuse as anything else. There's nothing inherently special about words. It depends on how you use them. 
So she and she goes even a step further. It's not it's not only just about how you use them. Words and writing are manifestations of liberation. All things that exist are manifestations of liberation. So Shariputra asks what might seem, you know, to many of you like the obvious question. Doesn't liberation mean detachment from desire, anger, folly, those kinds of things? And so the goddess shocks him further by saying, it is only for self-obsessed people that the Buddha says that detachment from desire, anger, and folly is liberation. For those who are not self-obsessed, the Buddha says that the very essence of desire, anger, and folly is liberation. Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna we're gonna go with that some more later. Okay, we're gonna come back to that because that's like whoa. Um, but for, but for the moment, notice that she's saying it's not even your emotion, your negative emotions. It's not even uh, desire, anger, and folly that's the problem. It's when you're so self-obsessed that you think they're the most important thing. So we're returning to a point that was made earlier in the Vimalakirti Sutra. It's our substituting our desire, anger, and folly for the real world that gets us into trouble. They themselves, if we just let them rise and fall, you know, along with everything else that's rising and falling in the field, don't necessarily have to be a difficulty. It's when we're so self-obsessed that we think they're the most important thing, that we get into trouble. That also means we don't have to fix them. We just have to see them in their proper perspective. We don't have to um, eradicate them. We don't have to transform them. We don't have to um, scold them. We don't have to feel terribly guilty about them. We don't have to revel in them. We don't have to indulge them. We don't have to you know, ha- have such a glorious time in our misery. We don't have to be miserable about our misery. We don't have to do any of that. We just have to not be self-obsessed, which is we just have to not think they're the most important thing. They're fine, just not driving the train, okay? (laughs) Okay. So then, um, the conversation moves into a very specific, real, nitty-gritty application of the... um, the, the philosophical concept of non-duality, and that has to do with gender. Oh, <laughs> Ellen, this part's for you. So, so, so she's 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 saying all of these um, amazing things to Shariputra, and he steps into his role of straight man again, and asks, "Why don't you transform your female body?" Okay, so. In that is um, a cultural assumption and of, of that time and place, and also, I'm sorry to say, of Buddhism at that time and place, which was that um, the only way you could be enlightened was to be in a male body. So if she's so wise and she, she can perform magic things and, and do wonderful things, well, why doesn't she use that power to get, to get out of her female body and into a male body? Um, and so, interestingly enough, the, Vim- the Vimalakirti Sutra takes that head on and allows the goddess, in the context of the story, to completely dismantle that, that kind of view. 
So, so the goddess replies, For the past 12 years, I've looked for the characteristic of being female and have found it to be unattainable. So what is there to change? It's as if a magician conjures up a phantom woman. If someone asks her, why don't you transform your female body, would that person's question be reasonable or not? Shariputra said, it would not. Phantoms have no fixed form, so what is there to change? And the goddess says, all things are like this. Nothing has a fixed form. So why do you ask, why don't you transform your female body? So in, in the context of that time and place, the really radical message of Mahayana Buddhism was that there, there is no place we can locate femaleness or maleness or um, race or ethnicity or you know, any of the ways that we, t- we divide people up. There's no way you can find the thing that makes you that because there's nothing fixed in the world, everything is um, rising and falling and impermanent and kind of swirling into existence and swirling out again. Um, we, we may have um, thought more about this and had, had different things to say, but, but in that time and place to say you, can, you have to make a distinction between um, what we ascribe to femaleness or maleness and what it actually is, that they're not the same thing, that we have a story, we have a view. Each culture has a story and a view each time. But that has nothing to do with any kind of fixed essence. So, um, feeling that she wasn't, um, hadn't quite made the deal yet, she used her supernatural powers to change Shariputra into a goddess like herself. <laughs> and... And she, took, and she took on Shariputra's form. She then asked, why don't you trans- transform your female body? And Shariputra, still in the form of a goddess, answered, I don't know how you transform me into this female body, so I don't know how to transform my way out of it. And, um, and so she says to him, um, although um, just as Shariputra is, is not female, but is manifesting a female body. So again, this distinction that there are causes and conditions that we call femaleness or, or maleness or you know, any of the other divisions we make of people. Um, although there are causes and conditions that manifest that way, that doesn't mean that there's an essence of that thing. Um, although they manifest female bodies, they are not female. There's not something essentially specific. Therefore, the Buddha has explained that all phenomena are neither male nor female nor anything else. At this point, the goddess withdrew her supernatural power and Shariputra returned to his previous form. And so the goddess asks him, where is the form of your female body now? Shariputra said, the form of my female body doesn't exist, yet doesn't not exist. So that's interesting. There's a little turn there. It doesn't, I get that it doesn't, it's gone. It's not here, but it's here also. There's a way in which it doesn't not exist. So with that, the goddess says, all things are like that, in not existing and yet not not existing. So then we begin to get, I think, closer into um, more of a, maybe a, a contemporary understanding of questions like gender, which is, you know, there's, there's 
it matters and it doesn't matter at the same time you know at different levels it matters and it doesn't matter it it, it doesn't exist and it doesn't not exist the it does not exist is the part about it yeah it matters it makes a difference it has consequence um, in the world of of phenomena and materiality it it does matter so I think you know where the conversation lands is not that gender isn't true it's just not what you think it is and that's probably a pretty good place to land so it's inviting us to examine whatever our assumptions are about it and um, one way one way I like to think about the whole interchange is when we were doing practices of the night we were doing uh, sleeping and dreaming together a, a few weekends ago we talked about how there is a dream body that that is um, constellated when we're dreaming and that dream body is capable of, of a lot of things that are different than what we're capable of in, in our ordinary lives most of the time sometimes maybe we're capable of those things but you know you can fly and you can turn blue and you can speak strange languages and animals speak to you and, um, and all of that stuff can happen but one of the things that we were working with over the weekend together was that that dream body isn't a place we go a few hours a night it, or it doesn't just come into existence in, in the time of dreaming, that that dream body's always there. That's always part of us. And this is what I think they're saying about, about um, gender, that, that it both exists and doesn't exist at the same time, and that it's like a dream body. We, each of us take a dream body with all of the specific characteristics um, of this life. This is our dream body for this life. Okay, then um, she says. She says, you know, there there are eight rare things that happen here in Vimalakirti's room, which I take to mean if you don't identify with your views, um, if you recognize that duality exists in your mind and not in the world, um, if you realize that that things like gender are um, are concepts that have um, that at a certain level have no inherent reality. Um, if if you know that the, that um, your feelings are not the most important thing, um, then what's the room like? What happens as a result of that? And I find her her description of it quite beautiful, and, and um, hope you do too. So the eight rare phenomena in this room that comes about as a result of this kind of practice, this kind of bodhisattva vow is first that the room is always illuminated with golden light and it never changes day or night and it has nothing to do with the sun and the moon. So the first thing about this room that gets created when we make the bodhisattva vow is that it's, um, it's radiant all the time and it's not dependent on circumstances and conditions. Things don't have to be good or nice or beautiful or supportive or any of that for the radiance to be there. It's just there. It's inherent to the air. Second thing is that the room is always filled with music made by heavenly beings, which expresses the Dharma. That makes me think about the Sermon of the Non-Sentient, we've talked about in the past that everything 
rocks and grasses and rivers and mountains and the stars and um, skyscrapers and suspension bridges are all expressing the Dharma all the time. That, that music is always playing. The music of the spheres. And um, it also seems to me that when we, when we take together the rain of flowers and the goddess reminding us of the constant radiance of everything and of the music that's always playing, her role seems to me to be to remind us of the beauty of the way. In the midst of all of this philosophy, in the midst of all of this hard practice, don't forget the way is beautiful and the world is beautiful. In the midst of our coming to terms with suffering and pain and unfairness and difficulty, it's also true that the world is beautiful. Don't forget that. That's important. And that seems to be her particular voice in the mix. The third rare thing about Vimala Kirti's room is that those who enter the room are never troubled by defilements, never troubled by either the stuff in their own heart minds or by things coming from the world, which doesn't mean that those things don't happen. It means they're not troubled by them. So again, we'll pick that up in, in, in the next section. Um, the fourth thing about this room is that in this room, all beings come together in a gathering that never ends. So no private Buddhas here. <laughs> the nature of this room is it's the place where all beings come together in a gathering that never ends. And when they do, this is what happens. So numbers five and six are... In this room, there's constant exposition of the six paramitas and the dharma, which is to say there are constant reminders of the foundations of practice, of the stuff we do over and over again, um, the stuff that we're always referring to. We're being reminded, we're being grounded all the time in, that, in, the, in the practice that we know so well. It's just become like breathing to us. And number six in this room, there is constant exposition of new and deeper teachings. So there's the grounding and the reminder of what we know so well, we don't even have to think about it anymore, and there's something new always happening. Because we gather together, because we don't think words are bad things, <laughs> because we speak and listen, something new is always happening. The Dharma is always growing and changing in relationship to circumstances, and we're all making it. Everyone in the gathering is making it. So um, the results of that are, number seven, that from this room is access to the pure lands. So that's what happens internally. What happens internally is in this room we can always touch the pure land inside ourselves, and we can always see the pure land that the world is. If you remember way back to the beginning of these talks, the first thing that happens is that um, the Buddha is saying that this world is the pure land, and Shariputra says, I don't experience this as the pure land. I experience this as a really complicated, difficult, painful place. And, um, and the Buddha just puts his, wiggles his toes into the earth, and suddenly Shariputra can see that this world, in all its difficulty, pain, and beauty is the pure land. And the Buddha says, it's not the world that changed, it's your perception. 
So same point over and over and over again. So from, from this room that we make together in our endless gathering, the pure lands are accessible all the time for each of us. And for everyone, there are inexhaustible storehouses for the benefit of all. So one of the results of this is something is just endlessly generated for the benefit of others. There's more than enough to go around. Then, as the conversation between the goddess and, and, and um, Shariputra is coming to a close, there's something that goes by very quickly, but it really lit up for me. It seemed so beautiful. Shariputra asks her, how long will it be until you attain Anyatara Samyak Sambodhi, which is perfect, complete enlightenment? How long will it be until you get it? And the goddess says, I'll never attain Anyatara Samyak Sambodhi. Why? Bodhi is without any fixed location and therefore can't be attained. Well, if Bodhi is w- without any fixed location, that means it's everywhere. <laughs> and that's really important. So let me finish what she has to say and, and, and speak to that. She says, um, and, and Shariputra said, um, the Buddhas who are now attaining Anyatara Samyak Sambodhi, those who have attained it in the past and those who will attain it in the future are as numerous as the sands of the Ganges River. What about all of them? Are you telling me that they, they're not attaining anything? And she says, um, it's only with conventional words and numbers that we talk about past, present, and future. We talk about the existence of time. It's not that there is past, present, and future in Bodhi, in awakening. So there's no fixed location, and there's no time. There's no past, present, and future. So it's always here, and that's not a cliche. It's here. It's next to you. It's inside you. It's all around you. It's in everybody else. It's already here, because it's everywhere. And if it has no time, you can't have blown it. You can't have missed your chance because there's no past, present, or future. And it's not something that will happen, you know, in the future if I do X, Y, and Z. It's, it can happen right here, right now. It is already happening right here and right now. So it's not a matter of working to make it happen or worrying that it happened before and I've lost it. It's a matter of just seeing that it's right here and right now. Every moment, moment after moment. And one of the, the nice small corollaries of it is, um, as you awaken, you, you lose any sense of regret for all that time you wasted. <laughs> because there's no such thing as wasted time. When, as awakening opens, as it comes in, it runs through the present, into the past, and into the future. Nothing lost, nothing to regret, nothing wasted. It's all illuminated, all of it. No before, no after. No before, no after.
Okay. Um, so I said I was going to come back to a couple of the things we talked about, and we're, we're, now we're getting into um, something quite juicy, I think. As opposed to what we've been doing, right? <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, so now that the um, the the dialogue turns back to Vimala Kirti and Manjushri, so the com- the conversation between them is now picking back up, and it and it picks up some of the points that the goddess has just made with Shariputra. Um, and and the gist of what I'm about to say is that um, Vimala Kirti asserts to Manjushri that only someone immersed in the world can attain Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi. Only someone immersed in the world can have a complete awakening or enlightenment experience. A private Buddha who has separated themselves out from the world cannot. That's an amazing thing to say. Cannot. Has lost the connection. Because, well, I'll go through it and see if that starts to make sense. So, um, Vimala Kirti says, Manjushri, by going to places that are the opposite of the way, of what we think of as the way of our ideal of the way, by going to the places that are the opposite of all the nice, good, you know, sincere, important, pure stuff, it's by doing that that the Bodhisattva is able to walk the way. By going to, to places that are the opposite of the way, the Bodhisattva is able to walk the way. And so he asks Manjushri, what may act as the seeds of the Tathagata? What may act as the seeds of this um, growing awakening inside of us? And Manjushri gives this great list. He says, um, okay, the seeds of the Tathagata, the possession of a body constitutes this seed. That's the basic condition. You have to be embodied. Ignorance and partiality. Partiality in the sense of, um, you know, choosing some things over, liking some things better. Ignorance and partiality constitute this seed. Lust, anger, and stupidity. The four confusions, the five hindrances, the six senses, the seven abodes of consciousness, the eight heterodox teachings, the nine sources of anxiety, the ten evil actions all constitute this seed. Okay. That's kind of, you know, that's a, that's a startling assertion. So Manjushri goes on and he says, um, it, is, it is only within the mud of the afflictions that sentient beings give rise to the Dharma. And he uses a couple of images for that. One of them is quite famous. The lotus doesn't grow on the dry upland plain. It grows in the muck and mire of a low-lying marsh. And he also said, I love this, if you plant seeds in the sky, they will never grow. <laughs> Isn't that great? So that's the problem with the, with the private Buddha. The private Buddha is living in the sky. And you can't, there's, you can't plant seeds there. They, it won't grow. Only when you plant them in well-manured soil can they sprout and flourish. And then finally he says, if you do not descend into the vast ocean, you can never acquire a priceless pearl. So Vimala Kirti picks up this theme and starts to explain how could this be so. And he says, um, the private Buddhas who have cut off all entanglements are like people whose faculties are impaired. That 
you know, if you cut off your entanglements with the world, if you cut off the ways in which you're enmeshed and part of the causes and conditions of the world, it's like you've impaired your faculties. They can no longer benefit from the Dharma, nor will they ever have the desire to. Okay, so what's that? Um, Now we move from what the sutra actually says to what I'm saying, and I just want to make that clear, because it doesn't say any more than that, and so the rest is my my attempt to, to try to amplify that. You, you can't benefit from the Dharma, nor will you ever have the desire to. So I think that what Vimalakirti is saying is that if you try to separate yourself from the world, keep yourself pure, keep yourself unentangled, um, remain deep in a sort of um, unmoving samadhi, then your aspiration and your yearning can't be aroused. There's, in, in that place, there is no aspiration. There is no yearning. It's unchanging and unmoving. So you don't have bodhicitta. You don't have the bodhisattva vow to awaken so that you can support all beings in their awakening. You lose that, and that's important. It means that your heart isn't a part of it anymore. The heart that feels the heart that aspires, the heart that yearns, isn't a part of the mix anymore. You're in the sky. So I think that's the first thing. They, that's what he means by that. They won't even have the desire for Anyutara Samyak Sambodhi anymore. And then the second thing um, that I, I, I believe this means is that we can't awaken unless we're really willing to come to terms with the caught or bound state that we feel being alive. We can't skip over that. We can't escape that. We have to come to terms with that in order to awaken. And what I mean by that is not you know, endlessly indulging in, um, in misery, but um, noticing that in our relationships with our caught or bound places, usually we're not in a direct experience of them. Usually we're in a second order of experience. We're in our ideas about being caught or bound. We're in our ideas about the difficulty. So we have to step back and come into um, to, uh, direct relationship with, with the fact that there is that state of being bound. Um, so, if we, when we're doing that, we haven't realized what the goddess was saying earlier, that we have views about everything, we'll think the views are the way the world really is. And if you are stuck in a room... <laughs> with your um, particular forms of suffering, if you, if you don't recognize that there's a, there's a difference between you and your views, if you think your views are you, there is no way out of that locked room. So it's interesting to me that in this sutra, which is all about... Um, non-duality, it's also saying 
there can be a false union there can be a false oneness and when we identify with our views that's a false oneness that's a, that's an incorrect identification that's really going to get us into trouble and this is parallel to something we were talking about earlier in the series when we identify with the conditions of our lives if if because because i have had x experience i am y you know i am the product of my experience i'm the product of my childhood i am the product of what's happened to me if we identify with our life experience in that way if we identify with our views those are both false onenesses which will really get us into trouble because the only way out of the locked room is to first disidentify to first see that our views are not us and they're not reality and when we can put that little bit of space in there and say it's a view um the world opens up everything becomes possible because the the false unity has been broken and we can see that a view rises and falls a view might change we can explore a view we don't have to um we don't have to accept it as inevitable we can look at it as provisional and that shift from my view is in, is inevitable to my view is provisional is the difference between being stuck in the room and not being stuck in the room okay so in this encounter with um the places where we are caught and bound that is essential to awakening this is where the heart comes in and this is where you get into trouble if you've dropped the heart if you've left let the heart go um first of all in the form of compassion for yourself oh here's my caught bound stuck locked room place again okay so i can jump into the second order of experience um and chastise myself or feel sorry for myself or do any of that or i can just okay here it is here i am again my heart is open even to this my heart is open even to this and immediately to realize that the way to go is not to get smaller and to focus on woe is me <laughs> you know here i am again this hurts i hate this i can't bear this but to to allow this to open our hearts still further to remind us that this is the way the world is not just us we are not in our own little private hell you know the world is tough the world is also beautiful but it's tough and we make a connection between what's happening inside of us and what's happening in the rest of the world and this is a, a step away from self obsession this is a step toward remembering that we take place in the world and the world takes place in us so then as we get that spaciousness and we remember right yeah this is how the world breathes this is how the world rolls you know we might even be be able to begin to experience what's happening to us 
not as our private pain in the way that a private Buddha experiences their enlightenment as a private experience. It's the same damn thing. It's the other side of that coin. You know, it's just mine. (laughs) Whether it's enlightenment or pain, right? It's the same delusion. Um, Just depends on how you felt when you woke up that morning. Which which way you're going to run with that, you know? Um, But if, if, if we can... Not if we cannot do that, if we can remember that this is the rising and falling of the world, then maybe we can even begin to see that the pain we're experiencing, the suffering we're feeling, is a little shard of the world's suffering that's been given into our care. And if we can heal it, if we can um, change it in some way, we're doing that for the world, not just for ourselves. And imagine being in Vimalakirti's 10 by 10 foot room in the endless gathering if everybody were doing that. If everybody were seeing their work as being taking care of some small shard of the world that had been given into their, um, into their care and we all knew that everybody else was doing the same thing, that that's what we were doing together. That's what it means to be in Vimalakirti's room. Okay, so when we encounter suffering in this way, um, we have to be willing to be devastated. We can't try to avoid it. We have to be willing, if that's, if that's what's in the cards, if that's what's happening... Um, to be devastated and I'm thinking about a koan some of us were talking about yesterday that has two stories right next to each other one in which someone is kind of psychologically devastated and the next one in which someone has a, a serious physical trauma and the thing that links the two stories is that even in the, that mo- those moments, those two moments one of psychological devastation and one of physical trauma when a call was made, when the world called, both people responded. Both people didn't turn away. So um, this is where the, the transformation of suffering can happen. When we make a bridge between the suffering we're experiencing and the awakening we hope for, and we make that bridge by being willing to turn back and say yes instead of just fleeing. And one of the ways we do that is when we feel that our, our pain, our devastation, our trauma isn't the most important thing, but our bodhicitta our yearning for enlightenment for the benefit of all is the most important thing. When we put that at the center, that helps us make that bridge where we can stay with what's happening, not try to escape it, go all the way through and find that bridge of saying, yes, yes, this too. If Bodhi, if awakening has 
no space, no location, and no time, even in such a moment, it's right there. And if we can stay there, if we can stay there with the faith that it's there too, something amazing might happen. Okay, thank you very much. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.